Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 500 of them now over the last nearly 10 years. And if this happens to be new to you and you'd like to check out some of the older ones, some of the previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and uh, look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and would like to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. My guest today is Justin Gold. Here's a brief bio of Justin. Justin has been assisting people in their search for inner meaning for 35 years. He is currently living in the Sierra foothills of Northern California, where he works with several dozen seekers of truth. Over the years, he has deliberately resisted the trend to become a traveling guru with thousands of followers in favor of preserving an element that he considers precious, that of maintaining opportunities for developing a meaningful teacher-student relationship. He is available to anyone who seeks his guidance and asks for no payment in return. So, Justin, have you had opportunities to become a traveling guru with thousands of followers, or (laughs) you just didn't ever put yourself in that position? I both never put myself in that position, but certainly when a person reads it, writes a book, those opportunities arise. And uh, the first book that I wrote, was, which was about 20 years ago, a lot of those opportunities arose, and I basically resisted them. Yeah. As people learn as, as we get into this interview, you've been a serious spiritual practitioner, if you want to call it that, for many, many years, and you didn't rush into teaching by any means. You know, it's something that sort of happened after you had really paid some dues, so to speak. And I think that's a good thing. I think a lot of times people have some kind of an awakening and they they rush into teaching and things don't always go so well for them or for their students. Well, teaching itself is a learning process. I think that... uh... I would not have even entered the process had I not been told to do so. At a time when I thought that it would be very unlikely for me to to make that move, I had just gotten comfortable with being with myself and being by myself. And and then I was told by by a mentor to uh, go put my uh, picture on some posters and stick them on the walls at uh, University of Oregon. And I, I did that. And it was uh, uncomfortable and challenging, and I got by the first few months uh, with a lot of marijuana. (laughs) But uh, sooner or later, I got the hang of it. And uh, the only instructions I had were, don't present yourself as being more than you are, and be honest and recognize that you have a ways to go as well, but you're a few steps ahead of the people you're running into. It's a good attitude. You know, it's kind of like that. I don't know if that's what they mean by it in Zen, but the the beginner's mind idea that some spiritual teachers, to their credit, say something like, it's always good to have the attitude of a beginner. Don't consider yourself to be some lofty person that's far beyond the people that may come to you for tutelage. I had some interesting input at the time from uh, an acquaintance. I had a friend I had was a quite a well-known Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist uh, teacher. I was living on some land in, uh, in Oregon, near Eugene. He called me and asked me if he could use the land for a ceremony he wanted to uh, have. I don't remember the name of the ceremony, but 
some ceremonies, some visitors were coming from Tibet and he wanted to put on a ceremony. He had uh, definitely adapted his uh, methods and they were not traditionally Tibetan anymore. There were a lot of additions that he made and he was quite well known. And I asked him, why, are you, why would you still involve yourself in a traditional ceremony? So much of what you do is different. And he said, well, you can't be sure. Can't be sure um, it's different can't, or can't be sure? No, you can't be sure that it's not something you missed. You can't be sure that something you left behind isn't the something that you still need. And uh, I remember that. The whole idea that you have the complete idea of what needs to be done is uh, just waiting for you to find out that you don't. So I took that to heart and I still do. That's a good point. I mean, I, I do talk to people sometimes who seem very sure of certain things. And sometimes, you know, they seem to have had some kind of genuine awakening and, and their, their awakening actually seems to imbue them with even greater certainty. It kind of fuels a certain adamancy about whatever they happen to think. And, um, you know, they become fundamentalists in a way, even though you know, I think they've actually got something experientially. Yeah, well, if we made up the game, we could be sure of how it's played, but we clearly didn't make it up, so we clearly can't be sure how it's played. Yeah. Do you still smoke marijuana? Rarely, but from time to time. But I have a great regard for it and what its capacity is. I also recognize that it's a little bit like dynamite. It can be used to create tunnels, which are great. It can be used to be able to uh, injure people, which is terrible. So marijuana, there has to be a lot of understanding about the use of marijuana, that it can supply a forevision of what's possible. But anything that can supply a forevision of what's possible can also be an addictive way to lean on it for those perpetual forevisions. So I'm careful with it, but I do recognize that it has a certain value that uh, is difficult to replace in our culture. I think it was Alan Watts who said, when you get the message, hang up the phone. I know my own experience with drugs in the 60s was, okay, that was an eye-opener. And I, really, I realize now there's a lot more to life than meets the eye and that you know, everything depends upon your subjective perspective of it and so on. But then I, I, had, I was also such a mess by the end of a year of that. And then I learned such an effective practice that, that was so wholesome and beneficial for me that I, I never looked back. And I kind of felt like I would be muddying up the waters to ever try it again. So I wasn't tempted. But having said that, you know, I just interviewed a couple of guys a couple of weeks ago, Michael Pollan and Christopher Beige, who really did some deep, serious experimentation. So they definitely have an open mind to the whole thing. In your book, which is called Just in Time, kids used to tease you with that phrase when you were a kid sometimes? They did. Did they also say just in case? Sometimes they said that. <laughs> anyway, in your book, which is a beautiful, interesting chronicle of a very adventurous life, you warn the people, in, or you ask the people in the beginning to wait until the end to read your, your so-called credentials. You want them to just read the book first and then get to the credentials. But um, if you don't mind, in this interview, I'd like to do the credentials at the beginning and kind of lay a foundation for who you are and on what basis you are going to be saying the things that you're going to be saying here. I do recognize that in our culture, credentials have become important, and uh, I don't pretend like they're not. I added them then 
uh, I added them to this latest book after some resistance because I think to some degree, although I am okay to go ahead and talk about whatever it is uh, that I have uh, going for me in that in that area, I think it's not recognizing people's ability to discern something for themselves. So we read reviews of movies and think of what we're supposed to like and supposed to uh, supposed to appreciate and don't lean enough on on some innate capacity that we have to make those assessments. And I like for those innate capacities to develop rather than to be artificially aided. I also do recognize that uh, it would be infrequent that a person would see somebody talking on a street corner with two people listening to them and go over to listen. More likely, if there were 200 people listening to that person, then it would be easier to go over. So I do recognize that our culture has that uh, stigma and I'm going along with it. So what do you want to know? Well, also just to add to the point you just made, these days there's a lot of books out there, there's a lot of YouTube videos and everything, and a person can immerse themselves in that stuff and get pretty fluent with it, get fairly conversant with it, and they can sound like they know what they're talking about. They can sound like they're a teacher or something. They can even go out and start teaching, but that could be deceptive. And, I agree. And so I think it's, um, you know, that movie about the guy who posed as an airline pilot and as, as of this and that, Leo DiCaprio, he just kind of bluffed his way into these situations. And I think there are some spiritual teachers who sort of bluff their way into the so-called profession. So I always like to get a sense of people's background and what kind of track record, what, what sort of experiences have they gone through to get them to the point where they are now teaching in whatever capacity or to whatever size crowds of people, small or large. So, you know, you grew up in Brooklyn, I guess, New York, the New York metropolitan Bronx, area. Bronx. 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 Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's probably a faux pas to say Brooklyn, right? Enormous. <laughs> right. <laughs> Near Hopefully Yankee Stadium. that will be the biggest one that you make on this. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't get any worse than that. <laughs> I'll recollect a few things from your book. You were musical from a young age. You played the violin with a fair degree of competence. You grew up in a rather large sort of extended family. It almost sounds like these Indian families where everybody lives under one roof, you know, all the uncles and aunts and cousins and mothers and fathers and grandparents and all that stuff. Right. I did have some musical talent. I was uh, committed to Vivaldi until I saw uh, Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley. (laughs) And then I quickly lost my commitment. So music was a big part of my childhood. And uh, in these uh, family situations, the words come play for us was uh, frequently in my ears and I always hated it. So I grew up in a a multi-religious family, which was unusual. The people that had come from, uh, from Europe, from southern Russia near Georgia, near Mount Elbrus, lived in a village there and they all escaped together and they were Christians, and there were uh, Jews, and there were Muslims, all in the same village. And they were secluded enough that they got along with each other and all made the escape together. And so my family had elements of all these religions. So I was brought up having to visit each one of those uh, churches, synagogues, which was unusual. I wasn't really won over by any of them, but I certainly was forced to attend from time to time. But I got a flavor of a a lot of different ethnicity and 
and like that. And there was a lot of foreign language going on in my family and uh, very little explanation about the essence of the religion. I could say probably none. And if there was any, it was in a language I didn't speak. So I didn't really have a religious background or any feelings of that. I basically liked to play stickball. So as you got older, how did you first um, get interested in spirituality? What led to that? I had a family friend that lived in another country, lived in South America. And uh, I didn't know what the connection to my family was, but he invited me to come down to visit him one summer when I was about 13. And I did. I went down to visit him and spent the, the summer with him. And it was interesting for me, not so much in a spiritual way, but I had never met anyone who had such different takes on so many different things and was so comfortable with himself. And uh, I had extended exposure to him. And it didn't, it was probably 10 years or eight years before I recognized there was any spiritual element to his teaching or his uh, involvement with me. I would say it was more human than spiritual. And I see that for myself as well, that I, I don't distinguish that much between, or maybe even at all, between a spirituality and humanity. It's Spirituality is an extension of humanity that happens naturally when things get finer. So I, I'm pretty willing to start at the beginning where things are pretty coarse, as I did. And hopefully some of that coarseness is left behind and then we can start talking spirituality. Yeah, I like your uh, emphasis on refinement. I, I think along the same lines of, as applied to a number of things, even refinement of the nervous system. But you could almost think of spirituality as a progression from appreciation of merely the grosser value of life to subtler values of life. And uh, since the whole spectrum from gross to subtle would be present in, in everyone, even if they're not aware of it, then everyone is potentially a, a great mystic. All they have to do is sort of become aware of the deeper range of their own existence. Right. Well, I, I was fortunate in my growing up period in my teens and early 20s in that I was exposed to a lot of different worlds in terms of living in the city, living in the country, being involved with gambling, being involved with business, being involved with traveling. And so I learned a lot of languages, not so much in terms of French, Spanish, and, uh, and Portuguese, but in terms of the language of all those different things, of language of cooking and the language of camping and the, the language of uh, hustling in a big city. And I find that uh, has really made it possible for me to do what I do because I deal with people from very different backgrounds, and I've traveled a lot and lived in a lot of different places. And And starting at the beginning really uh, necessitates having that kind of exposure. Yeah, I heard you say that in some of your other recordings that I listened to, that you you consider it very useful for not only a spiritual teacher, but even a spiritual aspirant of some sort, to have had a lot of real-world experience it perhaps makes them a, a more grounded or integrated individual or with the potential to be that better able to relate to people from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life and so on. Whereas someone, if, if someone has been shielded and isolated and, you know, then they just, they can't relate on a personal level to, to other people so well. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. 
I have a, a way of looking at uh, things, which I wrote about a little bit in that book, but it's very, very current with me. Not so much as a, an idea, but as an understanding of how things may work and probably do work, similar to seeing the seasons of nature, that there are seasons of human life. And uh, there is a going out period that uh, can't be circumvented. And then in that going out period, it's necessary to uh, explore. It's necessary to try different things. It's necessary to be brave and be bold. It's necessary to uh, bullshit a little bit. It's necessary how to learn how to sell yourself a little bit. It's necessary how to uh, how to become dexterous in several different circumstances so that you're not adhering to one situation as only being comfortable. And I see that the necessity of that period, and I see that it's also unfortunate to be exposed to spirituality during that period, because if you start knowing too much or hearing too much, what happens is your actions start to be censored. And I think this person who was my mentor or teacher was very careful not to inhibit me from being an explorer of ordinary life, whether it was business or gambling or cooking or whatever that I was doing, that uh, to go to go for it. And because I see that period of life, which you could be called going out, ramifying externally, exploring externally, is a very necessary precursor from what might be called coming home. And also that uh, the equipment for going out may be very different than coming home, which presents every spiritual seeker, every aspirant uh, at any stage with the problem of how do you sort through the equipment necessary to come home when all the equipment you've used is for uh, going out. Mm. What do you think about that? Well, um, I think that human beings are wired such that as we move from childhood into adolescence, we do tend to start exploring, you know, and going out and trying all kinds of things. I mean, it's just typical of a teenager to to do that. They go through this try anything phase, you know, and have all kinds of wild experiences and hopefully survive them. Um, And I live in a community, you know, where, well, I live in a town where thousands of people meditate or used to anyway. And there's an attempt, has been an attempt over the years by the parents to get their kids into meditation at a young age. And there's a school set up where everybody meditates and so on. And some of the kids have taken to it and have done very well, extremely well. And the the school wins all sorts of awards. But a lot of kids just felt like it was being crammed down their throats and they rebelled against it as kids will do and didn't want any part of it anymore after a while. And some of those kids did well. And some of those kids did well, as Irene is adding. Um, (laughs) In any case, I wouldn't make a blanket statement that a person shouldn't get into spirituality at a young age. I mean, Shankara was like 12 when he was writing his commentaries on the Brahma Sutras and the Upanishads, according to legend. But I would say that it really has to be one's own inspiration. And if it's superimposed or if one is coerced into it, then naturally one is not going to take to it. It has to be it has to come from within. Right. So then what happens when a person has to re-examine the equipment that they've developed, the support systems they've developed, and uh, where the person has to do that re-examination to see how much of that equipment is and what kind of that equipment is needed for a more passive or relinquishing life? 
a more surrendered life rather than a more controlling life? How does a person make that assessment if they haven't uh, energetically pursued the equipment to go out? Yeah, and if they've somehow become complacent in the group think of an organization or a, a you know a spiritual group and all sorts of assumptions and understandings can become so ingrained that you you never question them you take them for granted you know i know in my own case when i finally left the tm organization that i had been in there was a period of a lot of reevaluation and of of ingrained assumptions and i've i've observed actually that a lot of people when they when they step away from it, end up having some kind of awakening of some sort because some, somehow it just, you know, the, the chick has, has hatched and left the incubator and begins to look around and there's kind of a liberating influence to that, to looking at everything afresh and, and not taking your assumptions for granted. Like somebody once said, everything feels like home for a while. And then what? And then you have to re-examine, you have to see where you're at because uh, a lot of the effort that uh, I encourage, well, I encourage two efforts. A lot of the people who come to me, there's not a lot of people that come to me or a lot of people that I encourage to come to me. I find that the the going out process that they took part in was relatively inhibited. It was uh, that this teenage phase that that you may have gone through or maybe I may have gone through, uh, a lot of people haven't gone through and they've been basically careful uh, so I have to encourage those people or uh, inspire those people or assist those people sometimes even in their going out process. And I have encouraged a lot of traveling and a lot of uh, experimentation of different kinds with social work and different business and building and things like that because people, a number of the people that I've interacted with uh, have not had a dynamic going out period, but then some people have. And for those people... Basically, there's a re-examination period of uh, uh, similar to if you lived in the Northeast where you lived in Connecticut, you ever went to Miami uh, in the winter where I would go sometime, mostly to play cards and, and, uh, and gamble and lie on the beach, that uh, since you spend all your time or one spends all one's time in the cold, we have all these cold weather clothes and we think they're necessary all the time, so we take them to Florida and then in Florida, we're wondering why we're sweating all the time. So some reexamination of wardrobe has to happen. And there's a lot of wardrobe going on. Yeah. Okay. So stepping back from the metaphors for a second, you're just saying that it's good not to let your boundaries get calcified and your, your assumptions. Good to keep things fresh and alive. And I'm putting it in my own words to... to uh, not take anything for granted. I mean, there's a great quote from the Buddha who says, um, who said, you know, don't believe something just because somebody says it. He said, even if I've said it, don't don't believe it. Check it out through your own understanding, your own experience. Um, So, you know, we don't want to be cynical or skeptical about everything. um, But at the same time, we shouldn't be just swallow things because somebody says them. Um, You know, we should be open-minded and be able to explore and investigate with what really is a scientific attitude. I mean, even scientists don't always do that. They get entrenched. Um, but if we can sort of take everything as a hypothesis worthy of investigation and actually investigate it and determine whether it works for us or not, I think that's kind of a healthy way to live. Yeah. 
I kind of like the metaphor better. You do? <laughs> did well, I do I like, justice when I tried to make it literal? Did I do justice to it or did I distort I what you, you were trying did, to say? I think you did uh, exemplary work. But what I think about uh, metaphors and the value of metaphors and the value of uh, analogs is uh, because, well, maybe I could tell a little story. If, mm-hmm. I think we sure. have time. Oh, we have plenty of time. I had, I had one time had uh, uh, a telephone friendship with a mathematician. Godel. Yeah, uh, I read that bit. Yeah, interesting. Yes, uh-huh. And uh, it's, he's somebody who was actually uh, a, a compatriot of Einstein, but really never uh, became well-known. But I called him one time. I called him from Oregon, and uh, I had read something he wrote. And I was curious, and he picked up the phone, curiously enough, in Princeton, where he lived. And uh, he developed something called an incompleteness theorem in mathematicians, in, in mathematics, and also in logic. And the basis of his, one of his theories was that you can't use system A for exploring system A. And uh, that's my opinion about words, that words uh, cannot clarify a system described in words. So uh, better to use uh, uh, fairy tales, better, better to use numbers, better to use stories, uh, better to use metaphors of any kind, because the uh, fairy tales allow a person to extract what they're capable of extracting. Uh, literal explanations, which certainly I'm using right now, uh, literal explanations lend people to think that they understand things that they don't really understand because they have become adept at putting words together. Mm. What do you think about that one? That's interesting. Yeah. Whereas with a with a fairy tale or a fable or a metaphor or something, you can just sort of uh, extract from it as much as you're capable. Um, I mean, and obviously a lot of great teachers have used those. Jesus was full of parables and stories and metaphors and pearls before swine and you know and camels passing through the eyes of needles and all kinds of things uh, it was a obviously an effective way of teaching yes i think not only do i teach in that way but uh you said you were a, a herman hess fan i was so uh yeah, so back in are. the day, and and uh-huh. we also mentioned Vanderpost. If people haven't ever heard of Lawrence Vanderpost, check him out. Right. Story like the wind in a far off place. Yes, I think that's a an excellent uh, recommendation. But in terms of uh, Herman Hesse and his bead game and his description of the Magister Lude, there was a a, a, a crossing of of uh, of modalities of music into science and science into geography and geography into cooking and seeing the bead game was some formula which he never describes by which people explained one modality through another and i not only teach in that way i do think in that way i'm glad you brought that up because i remember that when i it was it's been decades since i read that book and of course, interdisciplinary studies are, are popular in, in certain schools and so on. But what it triggers for me is the notion that it would be good if we could find the kind of common denominator of various fields of knowledge, the sort of the source from which they all diverge. 
And there are educational approaches which do that. And if that common denominator can be not just intellectual, but experiential, you know, if we can experience that, that field of consciousness or whatever from which everything emerges and thereby from which all fields of knowledge emerge, that would be a, a great approach to education. I totally agree. I think that would be the meaning of education, really. I suspect that the realistic, the only realistic way to get at that middle of the onion, to use a heavily used metaphor, is to start from the outside. And so I have concentrated a good deal on starting from the outside and peeling that onion as it's ready to be peeled, rather than to start from the inside which is attractive and certainly in this new age day, extremely attractive, but it does foster huge amounts of imagination. And it has a way of fostering so much imagination and support system that all these other layers of the onion get ignored and imagined to be circumvented, but they seem to creep back in. So give us a a concrete example of what you mean by starting from the outside versus starting from the inside, if you would. Good question. Well, fear is clearly a denser vibration than love. And if we're going toward love, we're going toward acceptance and okayness and inner calm, then starting from the outside would definitely have to be dealing with uh, embarrassment, anxiety, uh, fear of different kinds, not so much of a cataclysmic kind, but the kind of difficulties that repeat themselves over and over again through the day. Competition, feeling that winning is so far, the coming in first is so far ahead of coming in second, that coming in second is, is a disaster. We've all been inculcated with those ideas and to become aware of them and to see which ones will fall away just because of the awareness of them. So basically negative emotions, difficulties, anxieties, tensions that are all representatives of densities. So I don't think anyone would disagree with that meditation is a pursuit, at least the experience of meditation, maybe not so much the practice, which can be challenging, but the experience is an attempt or a surrender into something that's very natural and a very fine vibration. And to try to assimilate that fine vibration, starting with something as coarse as anxiety and reactivity of different kinds would be unrealistic without dealing with going from coarse to fine in increments rather than uh, in imagination. So you're saying that if someone is um, wired to be competitive and if they have a lot of fears and anxieties and this and that, then it's not going to be so productive for them to just try to dive into meditation straight away that they, they somehow have to clear away some of that stuff before they can be fit to meditate deeply or, or something. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. I, I think that there are elements of discord that do get sorted out with the practice of meditation. But I don't think meditation has the capacity, in our culture at least, maybe for the farmer in the fields of a a thousand years ago, but with the complexity of our culture, I don't think meditation for us has the capacity to erase the densities that you say if we're wired. I don't 
No, I haven't met anybody who was not wired <laughs> with some kind of discord. Sure. Yeah. I think I would have to agree with you and disagree, just from my own experience. Because when I learned to meditate back when I was 18, I was what they call a hot mess these days. You know, just a pretty messed up kid, having dropped out of high school and gotten arrested a couple of times and stuff. Psychologically, I was pretty confused. But I got such immediate results, and my life changed so dramatically so quickly, and I stuck with it without fail for all these 50 years, that it somehow cleared me through a lot of the stuff that had been predominating in my life. And I don't know if I would have been able to clear through all that stuff so successfully otherwise. On the other hand, I don't claim to have cleared through it all, and I know people who do what they call spiritual bypassing, that's a popular term these days, where they try to do an end run around their stuff, and they perhaps even achieve some fairly profound degree of realization, but they're really kind of messed up still in various ways, and that can linger for decades. I mean, Ken Wilber talks about lines of development and how you can become quite advanced along certain lines and very stunted still along other lines, and perhaps some attention is going to be needed to each line specifically. You can't expect development in one area to drag all the rest along. They're going to retard it if you expect to do that. So has your experience been that you've met people who have had the success that you've had starting in the way that you've started? Yes, quite a few. Mm -hmm. I like that word bypassing. I'm definitely going to adapt it into my vocabulary. I had not heard it before. Yeah, people have even written books about so-called spiritual bypassing. It's kind of a popular term because there's been so much of it uh, in in contemporary spiritual circles. Um, And a lot of times people will bypass in a way where they just obsess on an intellectual understanding of what, you know, Ramana Maharshi or some other, some book or something is saying to the point where they feel like they they kind of know it and experience it, but really they've just gotten sort of in, engaged in an intellectual understanding. They, they're mistaking that for experiential realization. I think my take on the situation is that uh, dealing with uh, trauma and dealing with uh, a crisis is uh, less than fruitful because it takes so much energy and it ignores the fact that many crises are happening moment to moment. And so I break down the, uh, the, the difficulty or the densities that, that uh, people experience into the microcosm and deal with those more in the moment to moment being something like, I, I think I, I uh, use the phrase in some of my books, and I've said that embarrassment is a little death. So, and everyone has experienced to some degree doing something clum- clumsy and looking around to see if you were caught or anybody saw you and like that. And embarrassment is a very big uh, 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 element in our uh, in our development that we try to control our image and we do whatever we can to control that image and even seek people who will uh, reassure us that that image is what it is. And so I have seen that uh, every difficulty can be broken down into its microcosmic particle, things that happen numerous times a day. So we don't really have to uh, examine the past or be psychoanalyzed about our dreams, but pay attention to the 
pay attention to the present and uh, shit happens. So when you say difficulty, do you mean like um, habit patterns that cause people to create difficulties in their own life over and over and over again? Or do you mean external circumstances um, like I, I, you live fairly near those fires that were taking place in you know, Paradise, California? That was a difficulty for those people. Uh, are you talking about external or internal difficulties? I'm talking about internal reaction to external difficulties. Okay, so let's say uh, the fires. Um, take that. No, as I'd say something smaller, like somebody moved your chair. <laughs> I can live with that. <laughs> and and the mini difficulty a person has when they go into the kitchen and they had reserved something in the refrigerator, and somebody came in and and uh, and uh, chomped on it, and that many negative emotion that a person has and has many, many, many times during the day and not even aware that that's happening and the density that that creates and uh, being free of those things, those those uh, multitudinous events uh, is uh, is a lightening experience. And meditation requires some lightening. You can't be if you use meditation to alleviate heaviness, similar to if you use drugs to alleviate uh, uh, situations, that probably will be the ultimate of what you use that for. Uh, It seems to happen, not in every case, and maybe not in your case, but in the years I've been around, I've seen misuse of methods to, uh, to, you might call it self-calm, to feel better rather than to get free. Yeah. Well, you know, I've heard humility defined as the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. And that came to mind when you said getting upset if someone moves your chair, eats your ice cream or something. So there's a certain um, tendency, hopefully, to be able to take things as they come and to roll with the way things unfold without freaking out if things don't go the way you want them to. And then I've also heard you say that humility is a prerequisite to meditation and that in turn meditation is the portal to freedom or enlightenment. So let's talk about humility a little bit in this context. It seems to me it would be a valuable quality in terms of being able to take the little things that might otherwise push your buttons and just uh, let them roll off your back like drops on a duck. What I think is that a lot of the qualities that we aspire to are innate and natural and were there in the beginning. I don't think there is an arrogant child being born at that moment. I think that we have within us the capacity for humility, and it's not an attribute. It's a subtraction of uh, false confidence and arrogance. And as I said, in terms of the going out, these qualities that we've had to develop so when uh, we go to a job interview and somebody says, uh, uh, so how are you at uh, coding? Uh, how are you at uh, typing? We say, I'm good at it. If we say, no, not so good, then we don't get the job. So we know we have to be self-confident. And self-confident sometimes is false confidence. And false confidence leads to arrogance. And it's in the going out period. It very well be necessary to have that. But in the coming home period, a process, it seems to become an obstacle. So my picture of humility is that it is there and it can be uncovered. 
uh, picture I have that maybe I've described in my writings and maybe not is an ant wearing a, a suit carrying a briefcase. And uh, that would be something, if it were a cartoon, we would laugh at that cartoon. But of course, in some thing that I read actually that you said, that uh, how would it look from 50,000 light years away? It would look like we're ants carrying briefcases, wearing suits. So I think the natural perspective can be rediscovered if we let some of the add-ons fall away, we come to the natural humility that was there in the beginning. I often have used that as a sort of thought experiment, even just flying in an airplane and then seeing a city as you fly over it and thinking about all the, the little dramas that are taking place in the people's lives in that city and how important they must seem and how big and or I'm the mayor of this town, and the town is really just this little splotch on the map. <laughs> and then if you, if you resort to astronomy, which you just alluded to, and start thinking about how many stars there are in the galaxy and how many galaxies in the universe and all. And, and I remember there's this quote from Carl Sagan that he commented on that, that first picture of the Earth from some satellite far away where it's just this barely discernible little dot. And there was some comment about, you know, just all the wars that have been fought over this little tiny dot that you can basically hardly even see. And all that seems to me a hubris, a failure to see the big picture and, and an attempt to make something that's really very tiny into something that's big and important, which ultimately it's not. Yeah, I think that question can definitely be explored. And I think the exploration of that question can be fascinating. I'm thinking of a place in, I think it's in Utah in the desert, and it's called Old Woman Rock. When you drive at it from the west, it looks like an old woman. When you go past it and you look back, it looks like a Chevrolet. But it's called Old Woman Rock, but totally from our perspective. And uh, if we start examining the things that we see in relation to our perspective rather than what we think is, that I think that uh, some of that humility can be uncovered. I also think... Uh, Something like a uh, eclipse is an interesting phenomenon because people were very excited about this the eclipse that happened a year or two ago and even traveled great distances to be there. But of course, there is no such thing as an eclipse. An eclipse is something that happens from our point of view. If you were on the moon, the eclipse would not be in existence or other things would be eclipsed. Uh, so where much of our... Much of our life and our perspective is, comes from, uh, uh, from our perspective, from our point of view. And if we recognize that it's only our point of view and it's not, nothing to be confident uh, or, or uh, uh, pedantic about, then I think uh, that exploration allows humility to come in, that uh, we begin to study more of our conclusions and seeing they are more drastic and less elastic. Yeah, that point about point I think of view. Bob Dylan said, oh, what did he say? I think the elastic and the drastic. I think I stole that. There's a theme which um, I think is interesting here, which is that as an individual human being, our point of view is necessarily going to be rather tiny by comparison to the whole cosmos or something. There's, you know, we're focused on specific little things, but 
you've been talking about refinement and our our deeper nature and all and is it in keeping with your understanding and you know, the traditions you've studied with that our deeper nature if we go deep enough is cosmic it's vast it's universal it's unbounded and that we need to sort of rediscover that and if we do rediscover it and if it gets integrated into our experience such that we live in that unboundedness all the while even though we're focusing on specific things like driving a car or cooking dinner or something then we end up benefiting from the value of focus which is necessary in order to accomplish things while at the same time benefiting from the freedom that unboundedness affords yeah i agree with that i think that we have some considerable obstacles which are peculiar to the culture that we live in and especially in the US because we have been presented with such a large territory in relatively homogenous territory we use the same money everywhere we have the same language everywhere except spanish is a little bit it's a bit come more but at one time it was not really considered even the language that americans spoke whereas people in a country that i just came from visiting georgia which is a very small country and a lot of people don't even know where it is within 50 miles of any given city there are people that speak russian and people speak armenian and people speak georgian and people speak uh, farsi persian so any word that's used you can't explain something by saying the word is the thing because the word is clearly not thing the thing so if i hold up these reading glasses then i say this is an apple or i say this is a reading glass there're no more reading glasses than their apples they are what they are but in our culture they are reading glasses reading glasses are not a term we use to describe them they are reading glasses whereas for this georgian person uh, this georgian person can hang on language so much and i think the result of that is that we've been become more explainers than we become explorers because we can explain with language or at least we imagine that we can explain with language and when one explains and comes to an explanation which is viable and people agree with that explanation or even people disagree with that explanation then exploration is very difficult So one of the things I teach is that language is for exploration it's not for explanation. Let's try to use language for what it's for. It's a representative medium that we put letters and words to things so that we can explore the nature of those things. Now certainly when you're cooking and you say uh this needs more oregano there's an understanding of what oregano is and what more is. but a lot of the uh more sophisticated communication and certainly spiritual communication is reduced to terminology in equations that have maybe 3 or 4 or even 5 variables and anybody who's studied even junior high school math knows that the more variables that you include the more challenging the equation becomes does that make sense it does and it's a point that I've thought about quite a bit and even gave a talk on one time at the sand conference which is that our cultural collective understanding of the spiritual territory is somewhat akin to what Lewis and Clark understood about American geography you know when they set out on their expedi- expedi- expedition and um all these terms are thrown around in popular spiritual parlance 
which I don't think there's a really clear agreement on or common understanding of. And you have to have a common understanding of words if you're going to use them for their intended purpose, which is to communicate. <laughs> but it's hard to communicate about things that you haven't experienced. You know, you, you mentioned the reading glasses. Everyone's experienced that. And so everyone has a picture of what those are. But if you talk about samadhi or Brahman consciousness or various other terms, uh, non-duality that are used in spirituality, there seem to be a lot of interpretations as to what those might actually mean. So, you know, getting back to the Lewis and Clark metaphor, it would be interesting to see our culture evolve to the point where our understanding of geography now is, where we have satellite technologies that map out every square foot. And we really understood the, the whole territory that the spiritual quest is supposed to enable us to um, traverse. Does that relate to what you said, or did I go off yes, the mark on that? Okay, good. No, I, I, I follow. Good. A question came in from someone that's relate, that relates to some stuff we've been saying, that you were saying earlier. This is from Barry Cahill O'Brien in Spokane, Washington. He asks, well, he mentioned that I have sometimes previously spoken of Eastern mystics that sometimes fall into greater temptations they find when they come to the West. And he asks of you, Justin, do you think this approach of going out prior to spiritual development would help shield people from temptations when spiritual development is then later obtained? I think that's an interesting question. I think I did meet a Catholic, was he a monk or a priest, who had been initiated into priesthood when he was maybe 90, 19 years old and uh, had a very reclusive and secluded life and became disillusioned through his whole, through the process he took part in when he was finally freed of the restrictions of the order he was part of he went wild and uh, I, I see that the idea of especially in our culture where so much is dangled in front of us you can do what's never been done you can win what's never been won it would be very difficult to avoid have avoided that growing up with tv and having some of those aspirations of being a superhero of some kind, that if a person doesn't exercise those muscles to some degree, they are going to remain there. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you've done, they are going to remain. So I do think in response to his question, if I have a, if I'm clear about what he's asking, that anything that you do on the way out, and I'm not saying doing things that hurt other people or are uh, aggressively harmful or out of the middle of the road in any way, but anything that you do to explore life and to be bold and to take chances and live out the parts of you that have desires that are reasonable, the less weight that you'll be carrying into the spiritual pursuit. Yeah. Speaking of your Catholic friend, I mean, think of all the scandals in the Catholic Church from these people who are living a lifestyle that perhaps is not natural to them and they're suppressing natural urges and causes them to behave very inappropriately. On the other hand, you know, when I look back at my youth, I kind of wish I could have been a more disciplined person and a better student and things like that instead of such a goof-off. And I I wouldn't have mind having gotten a much better education and, and so on. And I feel like I did things that actually harmed me and took some years to repair. It seems like you caught up. Yeah, I've been working on it. (laughs) It's been a project. (laughs) 
But, you know, you, you, you look at some of these whiz kids. Then again, I mean, and we're getting a little off topic perhaps, but their kids, they have these helicopter parents, as they call them, and they're, they're loaded with pressures to do so well to get into the best colleges and everything else. And they never get a chance to be kids or to breathe. Or, you know, and the stress ends up, you know, resulting in all kinds of problems for them. So my whole understanding of meditation has always been that it's something that can be integrated into an active life with all kinds of responsibilities and accomplishments and um, it can help to relieve the pressure and give you a, a respite you know a way of releasing stress and becoming more relaxed physiologically as well as psychologically so that you can plunge in and do a lot without getting burned out in fact it's being used in police forces and with soldiers who have ptsd and stuff like that to great benefit yeah, it should be used on the soldiers before they go. Good idea, <laughs> yeah. I basically agree with what you're saying. I have maintained, the school that I maintained is based on activity, and we take care of a lot of land, and we and we travel together, and we have had some considerable social work projects, which we started about maybe 20 or so years ago, and uh, a lot of interaction, and not secluded and not protected at all, and I think that's really important. And it's also possible, I I agree with you, it is possible to uh, combine the introspective parts of life and the surrendered parts of life with external activity. And I I find no problem in that whatsoever. Balance, perhaps, is there? I mean, even the Buddha talked about balance, the middle way, the, the Gita talks about balance, Ecclesiastes, you know, to everything there is a season, turn, turn, turn. So everything has its place. And you know, I just think spiritual practice can be part of a balanced, integrated life, or it can be taken to extremes to the exclusion of things which you should actually be putting attention on, and you're not. Can I ask you a question? Please. I noticed that a lot of your references come from Scripture and from good deal in the past. I have written in one of my little blurbs, or maybe more extensively than that, that uh, in order for a person to be a viable spiritual teacher— they have to be able to do two things. They have to be able to pass the salt to you, and they have to be able mail to mail a letter for <laughs> you. And that would eliminate everyone who has ever lived before. So it would mean a person would be a more viable spiritual teacher that you met on the street corner who happens to be alive and you conceivably learn something from rather than someone who's lived hundreds or even thousands of years ago because their works or their sayings have been made public. What do you think about all that? Well, let's say you want to be a physicist, but unfortunately, Albert Einstein is dead, and Niels Bohr and Pauli and all those guys are dead. Does that mean you can't study their works and their writings and their knowledge? But you also need a living physics teacher if you really want to be a good physicist. You need a PhD advisor and so on. I think it's important to have a living teacher. As as someone once put it, dead gurus don't kick butt. But at the same time, I think that there's a value in traditional knowledge. And perhaps, again, the word balance comes in. I've also heard you quote this line, you know, you take what you need and you leave the rest. So I think value can be derived from ancient teachings. But a living teacher and a living practice is also necessary. And you can't just sort of dwell on stuff that happened a couple thousand years ago and expect to get really far. Okay. And anything I say, of course, is subject, it's just my opinion, and it's, it may be wrong. But that's what comes to mind in response to your question. 
it would only be relevant. And I, I called a lot of those stories, the biblical stories, the farmer in the field stories. Although very few of us are farmers in the field, I happen to live with some farmers in the field, but they're growing things that I don't think they grew back, back in the Bible. What I do think is that if those stories have not been updated, then those ancient scriptural stories are important. But if they have been updated, if they have been made more current, if some of these people that you've interviewed, of these 500 people you've interviewed, have understood and said things that are updated versions because it comes from their personal live understanding, I would see those as the current scripture that we have, and I would value those because they are the product of our time. Not to dismiss the ones that happened before, but if they can be replaced, I think they should be replaced. Yeah, you know, as you know, I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he, he used to say something that he called the three Eurekas. He said that there are three criteria by which our experience can be judged. It should be able to concur with the ancient teachings, but it should also concur with modern science, and it should also be actually our experience and not just some imagination. He said all three of those things can be corroborating evidence, so to speak, for the legitimacy of something. And he also said only a new seed can yield a new crop. And he felt that ancient teachings had eroded and deteriorated to a great extent and had lost their original potency and that there needed to be a sort of a fresh infusion of knowledge for our contemporary age. It's definitely a challenge sorting through all the the seeds to find out that, that seed. Yeah, and there's so much that was lost in translation and it got corrupted and distorted over the passage of time. And also, you know, you can glean little tidbits from all this ancient stuff, but don't take it as gospel truth, I would say, because who knows what was originally said or written. So let's learn a little bit more about you, if we may. You've had all kinds of adventures, and people can read about that in your book. But in terms of your spiritual practice, you did some pretty significant stuff over in Iran and Afghanistan and South America. And all. I think it would be interesting for people to hear about that, if you don't mind telling us. Well, I would have, but since I wrote about it, i got to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I described this relationship I had with this man in South America, and he basically pointed me in all the directions. Everything that I had done, that I, I had done as a young person, I had done at his recommendation. And things I wouldn't have otherwise done, so they weren't necessarily personal preference. But he, he was connected. He lived in South America. He had a, a school of a few people or a following of a few people there. And people came from Europe to visit him and spend time with him. And he had a history of uh, he was actually the son of uh, a Pakistani diplomat. So that Pakistani diplomat married someone from South America, and he so he grew up there. But he was very worldly and uh, had a connection to a school in Afghanistan where he uh, sent me to go, and I went there on a few occasions for a few months at a time. And what did you do there? Can you can you tell us like what kind of practice or lifestyle or Whatever lot, well, the lifestyle was the lifestyle was communal, and there were maybe maybe a hundred people there at any time, maybe eighty. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and it was an arduous journey to get there. 
northeast of Kabul and uh, a good way out in the nowhere. Was it a Sufi school? I'm going to stay away from that. Really? Why? As I said, language can only be misunderstood. It can't be misunderstood. So I would say it was a school for uh, exploring obstacles and there were exercises and things that I took part in, things that I didn't take part in. And it was uh, interesting to me. A lot of it took place in English because they do speak English in that part of the world because the Brits were spent so much time there. But a lot of it wasn't in English. So I learned a little language. It was mostly the exposure to people who were disciplined and me going there at a time where I was not disciplined, which was interesting and definitely instructive to me. But the particular things that I did there, I'm sure they had a value, but I would find it difficult to quantify that value other than it was an exotic part of my resume. What I did see that was definitely a value a few years after that, and I did spend some time in South America, probably a total of, if I were to add up the the months and like that, about three years, I spent with him in South America. And then he suggested that I go and he set up this retreat for me where I where I basically lived. I was taken in a truck out to the middle of nowhere in a desert in, in Iran, central Iran. And they left me there with plenty of stuff to do. And it was an extraordinary exploration for me because I started off anxious about what I do. And I ended up feeling like I could stay there for longer. And when the truck came to pick me up, which was the only other time three months later, I was not anxious to leave. You slashed the tires. I didn't slash the tires. <laughs> I, I did go back because that's what I was supposed to be doing yeah. 100 days. But it was a wonderful development of, uh, of meditation experience for me and passivity for me and lack of content, which is for any Westerner a crisis because content is so much of our lives, activity and stimulus. And the, the probably the... The greatest stimulus I had was about 15 miles out because I was above the plane in an outcropping of rocks. And uh, maybe every four or five days, a caravan came by of horses and camels and people. And I had binoculars and I could see them through my binoculars. And that was my entertainment for the week. Wow. And you had food and some had, uh, water and all yes, that stuff. Yes, I was definitely, I had plenty of water and plenty of food. Not the food I would have ordinarily eaten, but I learned to eat raisins and dates and nuts and stuff like that. Oh, they have good raisins. And, I've I spent three months in Iran myself. They have great pistachios and grapes yes. and stuff. Uh-huh. And so you were just spending your days in some little hut or something, meditating? I was in a, a cave, which was a lot more than a cave because it had been used for that purpose before. So it was very comfortable and I was comfortable. So it was not challenging in a physical way at all because I had been used to camping and living out and hiking and in much more arduous circumstances. But sometime when, if we ever get together, I'd like to hear and share uh, Iran experiences because the only people that I run into that are from Iran are poker players because I play from time to time. And they're people who have escaped and have a lot of animosity toward uh, toward the current uh, regime, which is understandable. 
Well, I'll just tell you in a nutshell, as I said, I was in the TM movement, and at one point, Marshy had this theory that if groups of people are together meditating, then they will sort of create a subtle influence which will radiate throughout the environment and hopefully improve things there, especially if there's some kind of war or something going on. And so at one point, I guess it was like 1979 or so, groups of us went to the Central America and Nicaragua where there was trouble and Israel, Palestine area, and I don't know, South Africa, because there was trouble down there, and, and Iran. My group went to Iran. I spent three months in Tehran in a hotel meditating most of the time and left about two days before the Shah did. And researchers kind of got involved and looked at various social indicators of economics and war deaths and other kinds of things and claimed that there was a correlation between our presence and changes in these in these indicators. I don't know how objective the researchers were, but some of their research got published, peer-reviewed journals and all. So that was my adventure there. It was interesting. I mean, it, things started to really fall apart towards the end. I remember standing on the rooftop of our hotel watching banks and liquor stores and movie theaters all go up in flames and it was good to get out of there (laughs) it's a really beautiful country really similar to california it has a lot of natural beauty and the people are extraordinary and i put some effort into learning the language after because i stayed around for a while and uh it's it's really too bad that it's out of the range of our travel capacity yeah and i hope we don't go to war with it and that too I've been on long meditation courses, and very often when I come off of a long course, I feel like I, I kind of went in with a rusty old Volkswagen and came out with a nice new Mercedes. I feel like there's been a nice change in over a number of months of intense practice. So did you notice anything like that from what was your whole experience of being in that cave? Well, I eventually came back to Oregon. No, maybe the woods of somewhere in, uh, near Santa Cruz in California. And I had uh, I felt very much like I was okay being alone, which I didn't have that experience before. I was definitely habituated to being around activity and people. I had a very different feeling about being alone and being around decreased stimulus. It was a wonderful feeling, not feeling I had to do things to be okay. Unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe a month into my honeymoon of feeling those feelings is when I got the the message that uh, you should start moving toward uh, passing on what you understand, which was very surprising to me because I thought I was going in the other direction. I thought I was becoming a, a hermit. Well, let's talk more about what you understand and what you've been passing on. If you were to give us some main points, we can go through, we can spend an hour, if you like, going through various points that you consider most important that you like to work on with people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to just say in part, because I'm sure that that's too up here, you know. I'm sure you're, you're hoping to touch people much more deeply and have a more transformational influence with them. I think that it's important to understand from my perspective that Spiritual unfolding is an uncovering process, and no creation is really necessary, not a creation in either an external or an internal way. In other words, we've been presented with human life, we've presented with tremendous diversity, tremendous opportunities, different colors, different sounds, different nature, and we don't really have to create a school. A school called Human Life has been created for us. So 
I put minimal energy into creating circumstances. I put a lot of energy into learning how to maximize those circumstances that we've been given. Because if we can maximize that school that we've been given, which is human life, then all the things that we see that we need to leave behind will become obvious to us. So I have developed tools. I have developed some methods which have been refined over the years that I've been doing this, basically for the purpose of exploring these obstacles that need to be removed, defining them, noticing them, recognizing them, and developing the ability to see them without reacting negatively, developing the impartiality to see that the human condition uh, is not our fault and that we have not to blame and we didn't do anything bad, but we did assimilate some destructive tendencies for the coming home process, which may have been useful for us to accumulate the things we needed to accumulate to feel grounded, as you say. And that it's an exciting process for some people. It's a depressing process for other people. It's a challenging process for some people to the degree that they don't want to do that exploration because it seems too eroding for the foundation that they've created. But some people are excited and interested, although not many. And those are the people that I have stayed with and have stayed with me. And new people come from time to time, but not many. We involve ourselves in all the things that people do in life. We do a little business, we do a little cooking, we do a little traveling. And in the last 20 or so years, not from my initiative, because I was not a social worker kind of guy, but from somebody else's input, who happened to be in my circle of influence, suggested that we take on some children's international kids that they advertise on TV, 15 bucks a month, and you can save a life and like that. So we took on a whole bunch of those kids and then we ended up visiting them. And then we ended up staying for a year and being involved. And from that time, before that time, all my explorations, and I've done quite a bit of adventure traveling. But since that time, all the trips that I've taken have either been focused around that, not only to do good because there are people that are hurting that can use some very basic help, but because it has been enriching and informative and helpful in perspective and humility for the people that have gone with me to these places, whether it be Cambodia, Thailand, Syria, different places where people have trouble. So that has become part of it, and that's part of what our world supplies. We haven't had to create it. So that has become part of the program here, even so much so, if I'm not going on too long about it, this last trip that we took to this little country, Georgia, it's a country that's trying to move very quickly into Western consciousness and be part of Western Europe. But it's a very ancient culture with some very ancient religion and very ancient buildings. So in traveling through there and seeing some of it, we tripped over some grouping of people, some community of people called Dukabors, which I had heard the word before, but I didn't know anything about that. Some uh, originally Christian people that developed in Russia and, and were expelled from Russia and had developed their culture elsewhere, but some very unique ideas of no church and no ministers, and everyone has God within them. 
know Jesus and know like that. Very interesting development. So we went to visit them and they're all the, their young people, of course, have left and mostly it's the remnants of the old religion. And so we spent some time and found out what they needed and put some money into helping them out. Not so much because we're good and we're kind, but because it's there. They're there, we're there, and it's there. And it helps them and it helps us. Absolutely. You've probably heard the word seva, right? I have. Yeah. And so what you're doing is a form of seva, which just means selfless service. That's probably a good translation of it. Even though it's selfless, you know, you're not doing it to sort of aggrandize yourself in any way. It it's conducive to developing more selflessness. It attenuates the ego somehow, I would say, to be focused on the welfare of someone else other than on your own welfare. And I, I think that's probably why certain, some spiritual teachers emphasize it so much. It's actually a spiritual practice. I think my experience has been that it's so enriching to travel and to give rather than to travel and to the cream of the crop of the sites and and the foods and like that. And I think anybody who would involve themselves in it, whether it's a spiritual pursuit or not, would find it hard to go back to the uh, surface type of traveling. Yeah, it must culture the heart a lot, right? Yes. Okay. So saying yeah. a little more about yes, please, what you asked me about, mm-hmm. the program here is very much focused on identifying obstacles of the nature of the kind of that we talked about and seeing if they'll fall away just by recognizing that they're there. And numerous ones do. And I've given the example, if you step in dog shit and you see the dog shit's there, you're not going to do it again. <laughs> if you call it mud, you might do it again. If you call it, call it chocolate, you might do it again. But if you call it dog shit and you see it as it is and you call it what it is, you're probably not going to do it again and you're going to avoid it. So I've seen that there are a lot of obstacles that we have to lightness and freedom and a finer vibration do dissipate from noticing them and calling them what they are. Of course, there are some that are more ingrained and they take uh, more recognizing and more internal, let's call it, intention to leave those behind because we recognize they're self-destructive. But I recognize the importance to not say that it's not okay with me as a teacher for you to manifest that way. It has to become not okay with you because I never noticed a child or a teenager change their behavior sincerely because it wasn't okay with their parents. Right. (laughs) Once it became, I never did. Often it would increase that sort of behavior. (laughs) Sometimes so. Just to get their goal. So very much part of the program is to give people the tools and the equipment and the reflections so that they can explore and examine and come to their own conclusions. I'm very adamant about not telling people what to do. That's good. So you're up there in Northern California, and people are, right now, there's like 160 people watching this, and there'll be thousands who watch it later. And they're all over the world. I presume that if somebody wants to work with you, they kind of have to be in your, they have to kind of come to Northern California, right? You don't do anything long distance. I'm a 25-mile guru. Yeah, right. 
Well, that's about all Jesus was, you know, how much he could cover with walking around in his sandals. Um, I'll, I'll stick with me being a twenty-five pound for now. Yeah, and so let's yeah. say you're someone decides to come there, and they actually come for a month, maybe stay in an Airbnb, and then they like it, and they decide to move to the area so they can work with you. And there you are in a group of twenty people or thirty people or something. And you have this process you just described of helping to work through things. How do you do that with people? What steps do you take to enable them to? Actually, there's someone in that category right now who's probably watching this broadcast. They came to visit somebody else who happened to be a friend of a friend and stayed for a while. And we're pretty open with people coming around. We have a lot of land and a lot of houses and are fairly flexible and he stayed in one of the houses for a while and uh, decided he really was interested in what was happening. So he came back a month later and stayed for a few more days or a week and then went home to his his life, which was 3,000 miles away, and heard that we were going down to, uh, to North Carolina to uh, give some help to the flood victims there and came down to help us there. He was didn't have really any of the preparation that all the other people that have been around me for years had. But uh, it was worth it to try to see what happened. And he came down and became enamored of the dynamic and the humor and uh, that we play music a lot. And we love to play music. We play music together and we play rock and roll and we play other stuff. So he got to like our dynamic. So now he decided to uh, evolve his life from what it was, and he's coming out here, I think, next week or the week after that, and uh, give it a try for a more permanent basis. But people do communicate with me and by email, and I'm fine with that, and I respond, and I try to respond positively and encouragingly in whatever way I can, and people can read my books or listen to the stuff on the website. I'm really not so much soliciting. I'm not looking for the, the money or the, the exposure. I see that a lot of people have come and gone. Uh, certainly more people have come and gone than have, have stayed. So I am realistic about that formula. And uh, I am okay with that. And if somebody comes around that I don't really think I can help them, I'll tell them that I don't really think I can help you. And sometimes that even happens for people who have been around a while I see that it's necessary for them to move on to have a different experience. And I tell them that I'm not looking to create longevity in that regard. So how does the whole thing get supported? You said you have a lot of land and a lot of houses that cost money, especially in California. What funds it? Well, to a degree, I do. Some years ago, invented the uh, pieces of paper that you put on the toilet seat in public toilets. You know what I'm referring yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. I invented those, and I have the design pattern for the pattern and pattern for that. Yeah. Patent, patent and pattern right. for that. And uh, I sold it to a big paper company, and I uh, still get royalties. They're very small, but uh, I still get royalties. So I've asked people, instead of donating money, just when you go into a public toilet, double up. <laughs> That's great. What a funny story. It's amazing how you can invent some little thing like that and, you know, and be supported for life, more or less. Yes, I made up that story. Oh, you did? Oh, it didn't happen. Okay. You pulled my leg. I believed you. 
It's a good story. No, it's a good story. Yeah. It could have happened, but it's a fun thing to say because the actuality is much less believable than that story. <laughs> so I've said that story, but I always tell people I make up the story because I'm not trying to create some illusion of something that uh, we work together. We have a construction company. We have a company that does derivatives from CBD derivatives, and we have that company, and we have different phases of things that we've done to make money. And we have gotten really generous contributions from people that have lived there or have valued what we do. And it seems to work out okay. We don't have mortgages on the property. We bought them all uh, and built our own houses because we have the capacity to do that. So uh, we own a lot of real estate and we get some contributions and we work together, we pull cars and we pull food and we pull housing and it seems to work out really well. Nice. So it's like this little communal, communal group. If, if someone were to join it or to get involved in it, do they have to like take all their savings and throw it into the kitty or can you sort of still retain your own possessions and mm-hmm. stuff? I don't see the idea of having requirements for participation as being viable. I see that it could be attractive to somebody, but I have a curious view on that, is that it really should be my responsibility to take care of the people who come here because I know why they're here. They are just finding out why they're here. So I make no requirements of any kind whatsoever, no dues, no requirements. If you like to cook, you can cook. If you don't like to cook, you don't have to cook. I have no requirements whatsoever. Now, naturally, a person has to be copacetic with cooperation to some degree, but there's no requirements for giving up anything, surrendering anything, letting other people use your car until you're at a point where you really feel that that's what you want to do. So that story is almost hard to believe because I know it's so difficult to have cooperations and communities try to develop what is that term where everybody agrees to something? Consensus? Uh, consensus, yes. Which consensus in democracy is really an ideal, very unrealistic ideal, but it's an interesting idea. We don't deal with consensus. And I do practice when I feel it's necessary, which is infrequently that authority position of a, uh, a tiebreaker. But it's infrequent that I have to do that, but I do do that. I did do that in this case in what I wanted to be behind me when we had this interview. And I decided that other people said, well, you should have this, a picture of Hanuman or whatever it is. I said, no, I want to have the fireplace. Yeah, well, it looks nice. You've got your guitar back there. Are there families there with kids or is it mostly single people or people without kids? There are kids here. In Oregon, I had a predominance of kids which happened during that time, which was years ago in the 1970s, I had more kids than adults. And we ended up starting a daycare school just to, because we were losing the focus in our daycare uh, attempts. Here there are, there, there are kids, and some of those kids are uh, older now. They're, they're in high school, and they're, some of them are in college. One of them went away to Korea to go to college. One of them is in Santa Cruz, went to college. We have had kids, and it's an interesting dynamic. It certainly is 
what I consider, if you don't have kids, I don't know if you personally have kids, but if you don't have kids, you have to find some way to have kids. <laughs> and that doesn't mean you have to have children. Right. Or we have dogs. get children. You have to have something that you take care of to that degree that you leave yourself behind. And that is part of my uh, teaching as well. There is, is no way to circumvent the self-importance that and the self-absorption that Western culture has fostered without having something that you are surrendered to taking care of. And I know pets can do it. Oh, yeah. And uh, for some people. We've had cats and dogs ever since we've been married for over 30 years. And for eight years, my wife ran the dog adoption program at the local animal shelter. And we've had all kinds of adventures of taking care of dogs that have been abandoned and all kinds of stuff like that. So that, that's been part of our seva. There's a couple of questions people send in. Let me ask you these. And then there's some more things I want to talk to you about. But I want to make sure to get to these. So one is from... Sybil Buckwalter from Randallstown, Maryland. And she asks, how can we use the power of our thoughts to create our individual and world reality as in affirmations or positive thinking? Can we use our thoughts to heal ourselves physically? Well, that's a good question. Theoretically, yes. Practically, I think no. Because our thoughts are so unoriginal and so subject to the influences that we've had on us that to say that this is a good influence, this is not a good influence, all the influences that we've had go into a, a common pot. And all, if you could see my hands, within this really minimal space, thoughts of everything in this head all swimming together, and then we're supposed to be able to sort through these thoughts and think which ones are constructive, which ones are destructive. And the, the, uh, as it, I talked about in Gödel's uh, theorem, that we're going to use our thoughts to sort through our thoughts has been proven to be unrealistic. So I'd say that much more realistic would be to stop a person on the street who's a total stranger and say, what do you think about what I'm doing? Then it would be for you to say to yourself, what do I think about what I'm doing? Now, this is a fairly radical statement. But if a person hasn't gone through a considerable amount of sorting through their own thoughts and seen how many, how many are limiting and self-destructive and derive the humility that comes from that confrontation of seeing that, if a person hasn't gone through that study, that exploration, then I'm not, not serious when I say that you're better off asking a total stranger for reasonableness than asking yourself. Now, of course, if you have gone through that considerable exploration and you can sort through because you have moved aside from all that you might call itselves in you that have all desperate and, and disparate and desperate intentions for themselves and you have been able to separate them from each other by moving aside from them to some impartial place where you would actually been able to look back at that and seeing which are constructive and which are destructive. If you haven't gone through that training, then uh, I stick to what I'm saying. If you have gone through that training, then it may be with a support system of people who can tell you when you're slightly going off course, then uh, I think you can use your thoughts and exploration with the thinking process, because in my opinion, the thinking process 
properly used for exploration is an incredible gift, an incredible gift, an incredible tragedy that we haven't been able to use it for that incredible gift. Yeah, that thing you say about trying to use your thoughts to sort out your thoughts reminds me of that quote that's attributed to Einstein about trying to solve problems at the same level of consciousness at which they were created is, you know, his definition of insanity or futility or some such thing <laughs> that, you know, the whole thing has to be um, approached from a, a different level than the, the level at which the problem has been entrenched or established. Yeah. I like a lot of his uh, explorations because they came through mathematics. I think mathematics is an interesting language because it tends to limit distortion. It doesn't eliminate distortion. It tends to minimalize distortion. And interestingly enough, in the time that I had that exposure to Kurt Gödel, I have very little school training in mathematics. Any school training I had was uh, really surface. I did study physics and algebra, etc., and calculus, but very surface. And not as a willing participant, as someone who wanted to get into a good college. But in my conversations with him, he recognized some ability that I had, I guess, because he perpetuated, as did I, the relationship. But he suggested I teach a theoretical math course at the University of Oregon, where I was having my meetings. And uh, uh, it sounded ridiculous to me, but he suggested it and he recommended me. And I wasn't pursuing it, but I got a call from the head of the math department that uh, Kurt Gödel, who he knew, of course, knew of, communicated to him that I should teach a math course. So he was soliciting me to teach the math course at University of Oregon in theoretical mathematics. And I did for one semester. And it was one of the most fascinating six months I spent because we were using this language of, of numbers and formula to explore all kinds of things that the students were not expecting to be part of their course, but we did it. And I did learn that if you can reduce the complexity of your issues into some metaphor that is less complex than the issue, you have a better chance at figuring them out than if you try to do as you described that Einstein said. Because yeah. Einstein also said, Einstein also said, if I can get this quote right, in a conversation he had with a married friend that, and I don't think I'm going to get this right, that he uh, was jealous or envious of his friend who spent a lifetime with one woman where he had failed twice to spend a lifetime with one woman. That's the whole quote. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I didn't get it quite right, so... Yeah, Einstein was a bit of a ladies' man. I watched a bio of him recently on TV, the uh-huh. series. <laughs> Interesting. Another cool thing about Einstein, which I think relates to our discussion about breaking out of the box in terms of thinking, not being sort of in the same groove all the time, is he would do these thought experiments and he would just come up with stuff and uh, other physicists' jaws would drop. They would say, how did he get that? And where did that come from? And he, he would take a thing like being in an 
you know, in an elevator and having it accelerate. And would you know whether it was gravity or would you know, know that it was actually accelerating? And he realized that you couldn't actually tell the difference. And he came up with one of his theories of relativity based upon that thought experiment. So he would just sort of have this imaginative way of looking at things, at ordinary things, from a new angle and come out with whole new realizations about the way the universe works. I have a tremendous value for that capacity and have definitely tried to emulate, study, explore, and manifest that capacity. I have had some success, but in my opinion, is the creative capacity that human beings have to explore in that way. Yeah. Here's another question. This one came in from Kyle Hilding in Minneapolis. Is there a difference between the meaning or purpose of my regular self and the totality of existence itself? What is it, if there is a difference? And then there's a follow-up question, but go for that one first. Okay, yeah. This question was put to me in an email by this fellow. Okay. Uh, recently, he, he uh, uh, didn't know what the dynamic was, and he wanted to make sure he addressed the question. So I'm going to give it my best shot. And maybe not answer his question, but answer the question that I think the answer that it would be might be helpful for him to hear, because I do recognize the sincerity of his effort for getting in touch with me and then getting in touch with you to try to ask the question. It seems to me that esoteric questions of that nature can foster long discussions, but the accuracy and the conclusions reached from those discussions, although sometimes satisfying, are more like, I'm not going to say Chinese food because I'm a big Chinese food fan, <laughs> which they say that you're hungry a little while after. Not necessarily. The amount of so. Chinese food I eat, I'm not hungry after. Right. But you get the analogy. I think that it's not the best way to go about answering those questions. I think the best way to go about answering those questions is to break down those questions into some microcosmic particles, uh, or at least manageable particles that reflect the ideas that he's talking about. So he's talking about, say the, uh, say the question again. He said, is there a difference between the meaning or purpose of my regular self and the totality of existence itself? Yes, the idea of totality and regular self and existence. They're all such variables and can be interpreted in very different ways. In fact, the whole idea of the self and selves as has been understood in so many different ways. And the idea of totality um, definitely is a subjective uh, uh, concept. So I would say if he could find some way to find in his life some reflection of that understanding of that uh, question, that he would be much more likely to be able to get an answer that would further him to the next step. Because in my opinion, as I said, anything that I would say would be an explanation of that phenomenon. And in my opinion, the best way to deal with that phenomenon, or the, the question that he asked, is to use it to open doors to something on the other side of it which would be another unknown and another unknown and another unknown till there are so many unknowns that a person feels comfortable with being in the realm of unknown. Because we are basically in the realm of unknown. We're never the creator. We're always the created. 
we're never the creator. We're always the created. And if we can, because we can throw a pot and build a building, we can imagine that we're the creator. But even then, we're given the energy to do that. So we're always the created. And that feeling of humility that comes from always being an explorer and never, never finding the final answer is, in my opinion, a tremendous opening to growth and possibility. So I know that doesn't answer his question directly, but I do know that a person who's trying to get an explanation for that phenomenon is much more served from seeing the size of that phenomenon and trying not to reduce it to words, but to reduce it to experiences, the best I can give. I would say that if, if we regard our regular self, to use his phrase, as being confined to this corporeal frame, then keep exploring because the totality of existence, as he, to use another of his phrases, is actually what the self is. And if the ocean has been squeezed into a drop, it's not going to feel, it's going to feel very confined as a drop because it's really the ocean and it needs to awaken to its birthright or to its true nature as the ocean. That's the way I'd put it. I like the ocean part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he had a follow-up question. Let me just see if we can extract something from this. He said, once one has spiritual knowledge regarding the meaning of the universe, how does one connect that meaning in one's personal life as a regular self with karma, suffering, triumphs, imperfections, etc.? So I guess he's saying if you actually gain deeper spiritual insight or, you know, cognition of the subtle mechanics of, of the universe, how does that percolate into or translate into the practicalities of, you know, mundane life? I think it happens very naturally. It certainly has happened naturally for me. I have a, an interesting history, maybe a unique history for a sp spiritual seeker is that I was a professional gambler for a while, and I did well. There's a guy on Jeopardy right now who's up to like pushing $3 million now, and he's a professional sports gambler yes, when, he's, he when he's not on Jeopardy. He's a Vegas guy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in my youth, I uh, organized and ran poker games in uh, New York City, similar to the movie that's come out that depicts that, and also horses and racetracks and things like that. So I have that history. And really everything that goes along with it, with the, the connections to people that you make that are less than... Unsavory. Yeah. yeah, unsavory is a good <laughs> word, yes. Thank you. <laughs> and so I have that background. Mm -hmm. I also have been involved in uh, sports and boxing and being... As a, as a boxer or as a, somewhere as on a the fringes? Tra training, train. training with boxers, okay. but never boxed. Yeah. Never uh, enjoyed being hit in the head as much. Yeah, I could agree. But did practice and had some good experiences with that. I have lived, I, I grew up in New York City, and I grew up in the Bronx. And speaking of the Yankees, from the, uh, the roof of my building, which was about three blocks from a Yankee Stadium, I could see into Yankee Stadium. And uh, the superintendent of our building would sell tickets or the World Series for people to come up to the roof. Of course, we lived there, so we didn't have to pay. So uh, I grew up in New York City, and New York City is a, uh, it's difficult to uh, grow up in New York City and not develop an amount of cynicism, uh, which I did. 
a lot of that has changed. I'd say all of that has changed. The idea of kindness, the idea of sharing, the idea of goodwill, all the feelings that go with that, the actual manifestation of, uh, of those things seem to come from me, and I never really sought out to get them. I want to be kind, I want to be kind, I want to be giving. I think it's a byproduct of the fineness that comes from leaving the denser obstacles behind. I think it's part of the natural spiritual progression of things that people find themselves doing things uh, not as selfishly and having a broader view of the world, a more accepting view of the world, a more open view of the world. I think all those are products. I'll give you an interesting example. Uh, I don't know how you'll relate to this one, but last year I wrote an article about the, the Olympics or maybe it was two years ago, whenever the last big Olympics happened. And so I wrote a, an article about the Olympics and submitted to a couple of magazines that I know that either I've written articles for them before or they like articles and uh, had a, a very, very negative response to, my, to the article I wrote. And I'll give you a thumbnail sketch of the article was that uh, why is it so fantastic that we are competing and excelling and priding ourselves and uh, holding people up to their accomplishments in the excelling of things that leopards do better in terms of running and monkeys do better in terms of climbing. And where are the Olympics other than perhaps Jeopardy, where our depth of feeling is held up on a pedestal or our ability to think creatively is put up on a pedestal. So I wrote that article that what has happened is that our culture has been a, and I think this is the phrase they, they didn't want in there, that we're competing with uh, animals. I thought uh, about that article and I thought, yeah, but show me an animal that can ski like Lindsey Vaughn or ice skate like Christy Yamaguchi or even hit a baseball like Mickey Mantle. But I get your point. Obviously, they're, okay. they're human attributes. Let's, let's stick with the point. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, I am in awe of the, especially the ice skater, because I've done that a little bit, and how they do that. And I've even been on a cruise ship where there's an ice skating rink, and while the cruise ship is moving, they're putting on an ice show. Wow. So you're, and you're skating the, on moving ice. They're skating on moving ice, and it is phenomenal to watch. And there's no one that can say it's not a phenomenal accomplishment. Yeah. But how about, how about those other accomplishments? Sure. And actually, in a way, there's no Olympics for it, but the people who are the gold medalists of the intellect or of the heart or of the, you know, of the pen and so on, end up becoming prominent in their own right. Maybe on your show, but I don't think so. The ones that discovered and become famous do, but how about all those undiscovered ones? Sure, I'm sure there are all kinds of unsung heroes. But, you know, then we, people, we have people like Shakespeare and Beethoven and all who will always be remembered for their greatness because of just what they achieved. And well, Buddy Holly. And Buddy Holly, of course, who died here in Iowa after playing at the, I believe it was called the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake. I think it was called the Surf mm -hmm. Ballroom. Now, there's an interesting chapter in your life 
which I hope you'll talk about a little bit, which is that we were sent as sort of a stealth agent to see what Guru Maharaji was up to. Because through intermediaries, you know, he instructed thousands with minimal preparation into the same meditation that was historically presented under very strict circumstances in, I guess, the school that you had studied. I was familiar with him at the time because I was like setting up TM courses on my college campus and a bunch of people were into Guru Maharaji. And more recently, someone had been encouraging me to interview him because he's still around flying jets all over the world. Somehow he's become very successful and likes to fly jets. But that was an interesting chapter. Do you have anything you could share about that whole thing that people would... Definitely an interesting chapter for me. And uh, I was instructed to do that. The, The history is that this mentor of mine from South America had connections in Afghanistan through a generation with his father, with Maraji's father. So they had some connection in uh, learning meditation and being subject to some of the same teachers. So part of this mentor of mine, whose name is Raya, his attitude was that as much as he knows or I know or somebody knows the possibility for the, the, let's call it the creator or the creative energy or whatever we're talking about that's maintaining this whole thing, isn't restricted from throwing a new element into the mix. Now, certainly in football, the rules were set, and when the game starts, people don't throw new things into the mix. But the commissioner of football and the league over the years have changed the rules. And they have license, not during the game to change the rules, but in the offseason, they change the rules and they say forward passes are like this, or you got to protect the quarterback or things of that kind. So it's not in my mentor's teacher's opinion, if it was possible that the creator threw a new element into that and there could be a finger snapping that happened or an instantaneous enlightenment that happened where a person could be introduced to meditation with no preliminary preparatory preparation uh, purpose whatsoever process whatsoever and somebody was saying that's happening it's happening and in fact there were people that were maybe hitchhiking with somebody else and going to one of these knowledge revealing sessions or meditation revealing sessions and waiting outside for the their ride to finish and they happen to come inside and they get initiated also, that if that were possible, it would mean that the creative force has thrown a new element of things because that didn't make sense. So he asked me to explore this question. Now, since then, I have seen other reasons that he could have asked me and for my own process, because I certainly learned a lot from being part of that process in terms of humility and and exposure to people that I would have never been exposed to otherwise. So that's what happened. I had started a group a year or two years before, and I had been meeting with people in Oregon when he told me that I should do this. So I had to suspend my group, which was a challenge for me because I was really getting into it, to teaching. I was starting to feel more comfortable about it. So he said, uh, Take some time, a year or two, and present yourself as an aspirant and no special qualifications and no saying that you're on any different level than anybody else, even though I had been practicing the identical meditation or more or less the identical meditation that they had been presenting in two minutes. It had taken me four years to get it. 
So I did that and I became a premi, which is what the devotees, uh, and I got involved and I got involved in all different parts of the process. And I worked on the major festival that they had in the, uh, the Astrodome and became fully involved in that and restricted myself from bringing up anything like, well, that's interesting, which is not part of the program. And although it came to my thoughts that I was making observations, that I was fairly well disciplined, although it did leak out every once in a while where I couldn't keep myself from it, bringing up the uh, understandings that I had, because it very much is uh, not a path of understanding. It's a path of devotion and love and really following. So I did that for a while, and I got exposure personally to Miraji and got the evidence that I needed and asked if it was okay. Am I done now? <laughs> I got the word that I'm done now, and uh, so I stopped doing that. Just in case people were wondering, he was the guy, many people listening to this won't even have been born then, but back in the early 70s, he was like famous as the 14-year-old perfect guru, and he made a bit of a splash back then. Yeah, it was 16 at the time I got involved. I mean, did you feel like it was a legitimate thing that was being presented and that people were benefiting from it? Or do you think it was a pearls before swine kind of arrangement where people just, due to lack of preparation, couldn't really benefit from what was being well, thrown out since to such then, large numbers? Since then, my understanding is that his program has come to involve a lot more preparation and a lot less dissemination in numbers. So I can't say I would restrict myself from saying I believe his awesome sincerity and his awesome energy and his goodwill and his history. So anybody who's going to put themselves in that position, I find it very remote to be critical of, even though I may disagree. And probably a number of the people that you've interviewed, if I listened to what they have to say, I would disagree with them. But the life of trying to put forth what you understand and have people follow it in the way that you understand it, it ain't no honeymoon. So anybody who's doing that, I have respect for, and I'm not going to be critical about. I kind of feel that way too, which is sort of an underlying premise of this show. You know, I don't necessarily feel that anybody has all the answers, but all these people are contributing what they can. And I'm trying my best. Yeah. And people naturally have an <laughs> I'm affinity. I'm trying my with best. I'm trying my best for you to make an exception in my case. Okay, so you have all the answers, right? <laughs> I didn't say that. I know, I'm just joking. But you know, people have natural affinities with different people, and one size does not fit all. And it seems to be the case these days that there's just this proliferation of teachers around the world for whatever reason. And if we, if we assume that that's not some kind of mistake, then perhaps the reason is that there's a kind of a rather than one to the masses arrangement, maybe there's some benefit to you know, much smaller configurations where people can work more closely with, with teachers and find the teacher that is a good fit for them and benefit from that relationship in a more intimate way. Thich Nhat Hanh said, uh, perhaps the next Buddha will be the Sangha. In other words, not some Superman figure that's just going to enlighten the whole world, but lots of little groups that will serve that function for people who resonate with that group. I think that's an interesting formula because it's a challenging formula for people in our culture because we're so much, if you look at a rock concert, that's very much in our culture that we like to look up 
we like to look way up. So somebody who can, I'm around a lot of musicians and we're all mediocre musicians and we can, we play well enough to have fun together and we do have fun together. But if somebody would come to hear us play, they would certainly hear defects. And we have played out, we've played in a few bars and we've played for a few events and like that. And if somebody would listen to us, certainly we're not a band compared to a band of people who have dedicated their lives to that venture. And we're very much programmed to look at something called perfection in an area that perfection is so subjective, but is recognized as somebody who doesn't make mistakes, somebody who doesn't come in second, somebody who has mastered whatever they've done and everybody else is kind of not quite there. But in actuality, if you want to learn something, if you want to learn about car mechanics, you just need somebody who knows more than you do. You don't need the car mechanic master of all times. But since our pride is so much a factor and our programming is such a factor about that uh, we can only learn from the perfect one, then uh, it really limits us and really causes us to see defects in people when there's no need to see the defect in our car mechanic instructor because their family situation is not what it could be because we're trying to learn something from them that we need. We recognize that we need to learn and we recognize that they know more than we do. So I like that formulation about that you just described from TikTok. Yeah. And what you just said also inclines some people to, you know, gravitate toward teachers who proclaim themselves as being perfect or ultimate or the best or some such thing. And that can be a tricky situation because, the, you know, you want to hit your wagon to a star, but then it turns out to be a falling star instead of a, a, an ascending star. And people can get dragged quite far afield by a teacher who, you know, goes off the rails and you know, who all the while proclaiming himself perfect or, you know, impeccable or irrefutable or whatever. And it can be or great. may not have may not have even claimed that we have near our community is the Ananda community which was started, in fact, the, the original Ananda community is about five miles from where our place is, and started by Yogananda, clearly a remarkable person, and uh, continued by some of his disciples. And it's very possible, although I don't know the subtleties of the history, but some of the people from there, one in particular lives here with us now, uh, and has told us some of the subtleties of the history, is that that person was more projected into that position of presenting themselves in that way than they chose to present themselves in that way. Yogananda or the person who set up Ananda? No, the descendant. Yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, that's unfortunate when that happens because if everyone's telling, looking at you like you are, you may very well feel the necessity to project that image. And, And that's very tricky. I think that it's more realistic and my situation has a very strong failsafe on it because I have dealt with the same people and similar people and even the new people that have come around. I live with them. I work with them. I cook with them. I fix cars with them. I do carpentry with them. I mow hay with them and we do our stuff together. And if there are any defects or uh, shortcomings that they're going to see, they're going to see them. That's good. It's a good model. It's like being married. 
It's very much like being married, <laughs> except there are some limitations that I have. Yeah, right. Good, good point. <laughs> All righty. Well, if I ever come out there, I hope you have a drum set because I used to be a drummer. I'm, oh, that would I'm, be I'm 50 years out of practice, but I'm sure I can still play them. Not only do we have a drum set, but we have a music studio that we've set up and we go in there and we, we play. Yeah, and rock we out. Rock out and we write some of our own stuff, which is fun. And when we were in Georgia, we adapted one of our songs in Georgia, the country, mm-hmm. to sing for them. And they're, they're a singing culture. And what we did was when we presented ourselves to them to hear their singing and their ritual, we sang our song, which we had adapted to, uh, to their language and their places. And they loved it. Cool. You could have sung Back in the USSR. That, meant, that song mentions Georgia. Yeah, it does, but the USSR... I know, it's Georgia, disbanded, kind of, right? <laughs> a little bit, not in such good terms anymore. Oh, I see, right. Well, there is no USSR. Georgia used to be part of it. Now there's just Russia yeah. and all the other things yeah. that have broken up. And Russia has taken some big chunks, big bites out of Georgia. Yeah, yeah, and the Ukraine. And the Ukraine as well, yeah. Anyway, we're getting into politics, so we better wrap it up. It's been great talking to you, Justin. I've enjoyed it as well. Yeah, me too. I will set up a page on batgap.com where your interview will be and your bio and your photo and links to your books on Amazon and a link to your website. And so people can go to that page and then follow up on all that stuff. And they can get in touch with you if they're interested in getting more involved. And uh, I'm sure there's some kind of contact form or something on your website, yeah, right? Good. There is. It just about covers it. So those you know, who are familiar with this show, I don't, don't need to hear all this, but those who, to whom it may be new, just want to mention there's an audio podcast of it if you'd like to subscribe to that and listen to just the audio. There's an email thing where you can be notified of each new interview once it's posted. And you know, a number of other things if you just poke around through the menus on batgap.com, you'll find them. So thanks for listening or watching, and thank you again very much, Justin. It's been wonderful spending some time with you. I've appreciated it. I've learned some things, and I hope you have too. Oh, definitely. Always learning. (laughs) As Jeremy said in uh, The Yellow Submarine, so little time, so much to know. Yeah. (laughs) All right, thanks. Thanks for those of you listening or watching. Next week I'll be speaking with a young woman named Leah Cox from the U.K.